Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, if you guys would, if you would uh, pull out your program real quick. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand and uh, we'll get one for you. But uh, right in the middle, there is a satisfaction survey, and I'd like all of you to do that. So we have some people over here. If you can bring a program over this way. Thank you. So if you pull it out, you'll see right in the middle, it uh, has a satisfaction survey. And since the weather has been so satisfactory the last two days, I wondered how satisfied you are. So let's look at this uh, first question there. It's on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 is that you're not satisfied at all. Uh, 10, you are totally satisfied. So you can take a pen and uh, circle that. Everybody got one? Okay. Uh, You need one over here? Okay. Oh, you're good. Uh, Number one, how satisfied are you with your job? Okay. One to ten, how satisfied are you with your job? Just keep your eyes on your own paper. Okay. Don't look at anyone else, especially if your boss is close to you. Okay. Second one there, how satisfied are you with your income? One to ten, how satisfied are you with your income? Next one there, how satisfied are you with your marriage? Guys, do not blink, circle ten, okay? (laughs) Just don't even blink, just circle it and move on. Next one, how satisfied are you with your singleness? How satisfied are you with your singleness? How satisfied are you with your home? How satisfied are you with your car? How satisfied are you with your pastor? Again, don't blink. Circle 10. (laughs) Just circle 10 and move on. And then finally... uh, And overall, when you think of your life, how satisfied are you with your life? How satisfied are you with your life? Now, what this question does is that it simply leads into bigger questions. Like, how should I be satisfied with my life? Or how could... I'd be satisfied. How satisfied could I be? How satisfied should I be? Are your expectations way too high or are your expectations way too low? Well, for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at a book called Ecclesiastes. And we're going to learn from a guy by the name of Solomon of what he finally found was the only thing in life that gave him satisfaction. And in a way to kind of help you grow in your faith over these next six weeks, we have a reading plan. I'd like you to pull this out. And what I really want to challenge you to do is to do this reading plan every day this week. We're giving you the weekend off. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday... Just for five or ten minutes, you read some scripture, you have an opportunity to think about the questions, and this is what I'm convinced of, 
that if you will do this over the next six weeks, at the end of the six weeks, you're going to have a much more satisfactory life than you have today. And how many wouldn't want that? So I really want to strongly encourage you tomorrow morning when you wake up or in the evening, if you're more of an evening person, that you pull this out and we go through Ecclesiastes. And this is a cool thing. After six weeks, you'll have done you will have read through an entire book of the Bible. And uh, it's only 12 chapters, but you can say, hey, I've done that. Okay. so this is what we want to do over the next six weeks. Now, on your little reading plan, we gave you a little bit of background uh, to this book called Ecclesiastes. First of all, the author of it is Solomon. And he was a king, and he was considered the wisest person in all the world. In fact, outside of Jesus, he's considered the wisest person in, in Scripture. Now, it was written in 935 B.C., and what he found as he went through this process, that the, the purpose of life, really, and the purpose of this book, is to demonstrate that all of life is meaningless outside of a relationship with God. If God's not a part of the equation, it's just a meaningless kind of life. So he creates this big idea in these first couple chapters, and it's our big idea uh, for this morning. It'll come up on the side screens. Stuff and pleasure and work ultimately do not satisfy. The stuff that we have, our material Stuff and pleasure and the work that we do ultimately do not satisfy. So I want to dive into uh, our text today, uh, and we'll start in chapter 1, verse 2. And this is what it says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. The teacher is Solomon. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, if you're going to write a bestseller, do you think you'd make that your first line? I mean, this is how joy-filled Solomon is. He, he's like the party killer. He would come to a party and go, hey, everybody, just wanted you to know everything is utterly meaningless. And then he walks out of the party, you know. It's like, have a good party, but everything's meaningless. Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Here Solomon's saying, hey people, if you think you have so much meaning in your life, if you think you have some real purpose in your life, why do you only live then for about 75 years or so? And then you disappear off the scene. While the rocks and the mountains and the hills and the rivers, they live for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years. He says, you need to think some things over. So before you go to bed tonight, you should just realize this. Your lawn is going to outlive you. So the next time that you're mowing your yard and you're going back and forth, just take a moment and pause and look down and go, lawn, 
You're going to outlive me, aren't you? Now, don't wait for it to respond back to you, okay? The answer is yes. I don't care how much time you spend on your lawn. I don't care how many dandelions you try to remove. It is going to outlast you. It will. And if you think about that, as you're standing on your lawn mowing, you might want to think this. You're not that big of a deal. Like, I'm not that big of a deal. My lawn is going to outlive me. Well, Solomon continues on with this search. And he says this, you know what I'm going to do? I think what I'll do is I'm going to try to gain knowledge. Like, if I just get enough knowledge, then my life will be satisfied. And so he goes on this academic quest. Verse 17, he says, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, but I learned that this too is like chasing after what? The wind. You ever see one of those little kids before they get the, they pull up a, I forget what that, what's that flower called that it, it all, dandelion. Damn, that's hard. <laughs> so the yellow's a dandelion, then when it gets old it, okay. Sorry, you know, I'm not up on my dandelions, I guess. So anyways, you have this dandelion, and have you ever watched this before? Kids will pull it, and then they blow, and then they run after wherever the wind takes it. They just run after it. And Solomon here is saying in the same way that I'm going to apply myself to wisdom, but I learned that at the end it's just like chasing the wind. Any of you uh, ever go to, uh, like, high school or college? I I did this with my parents. I'm getting ready to go to college. I really didn't want to go to college. So I pulled them aside and I said, hey, you know, the wisest man in the Bible actually said that knowledge is not that important. I don't think I need to go to college. And my dad said, shut up and get in the car. Any of you ever know a professional student before? I mean, a person like, you know, they, they get out of high school, they do pretty well, and then they go into college, and they do pretty well, but at the end of it, they're just not satisfied with four years of knowing things. They're just not satisfied. And so they decide that they'll go on and they'll go to graduate school. And they do that for three or four years. And they're still not satisfied. So then they go on to get their doctorate. And they have this endless quest for knowledge. And they get more and more and more degrees. And they have all these initials at the end of their name and initials at the beginning of their name. And they seem like they have it all together. But Solomon would say, hey, folks, I went down as far on that knowledge acquisition road, and I'm telling you, at the end of it all, it's meaningless. He says this, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Solomon goes all the way down the road. He's considered the wisest man in the world. And he thought it was meaningless. You know, some of the most cynical And miserable people I know are the people who are the most educated. 
Because what happens is they go through their entire life and they're pursuing and they think knowledge is going to do it. And they keep on going and keep on doing. And at the end of it all, they're just kind of like, it didn't pan out. It didn't deliver on what I thought it should. And they're left with sorrow. And they're left with grieving. Because they think about the decades that they spent in school trying to gain more knowledge. And at the end, it was like chasing the wind. Now, let me say this to all of our students, and I'm looking at our students as we go. Stay in school, okay? Stay in school. First of all, your parents will kill me if you do not stay in school. This is the thing, folks. Knowledge is important. That's why we have this book, because it's filled with knowledge so that we don't get hurt. Knowledge is important. Just don't let knowledge become your God. Well, he tries the knowledge bit, and that doesn't really work. So we go into chapter 2, and things get a lot better for Solomon. He's like, I'm not going to get so overwhelmed by all of this. And he said knowledge didn't work. So he decides that he will turn to unbridled pleasure-seeking. It's like he goes on an all-frat party for about two or three years. You just are partying. You are the party animal. He goes, I didn't find it in academics. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to find it in pleasure. And he goes for it. Chapter 2, verse 3. I tried cheering myself up. With, with wine. Does anyone know how much wine you have to drink before you finally get rid of the void that's in your inner being? Anybody want to take a guess? How much do you have to drink before it gets rid of the void that's in your inner being? Here, here's, the, here's the answer. There's not enough wine in the world. There isn't enough wine that you could drink. You can't drink enough to get rid of that. That's why you can give it the good college try. But this is, remember when in the Jacked Up series I, I told you this, that when we do that and we go down that road, you still have to take you to the bar. And you still have you when you wake up the next morning. You don't get rid of you regardless of how jacked up you are. And so there's not an amount. That's why we love Celebrate Recovery around here. Because if there's anyone who has a hurt habit or hang up, the issue ultimately isn't just the drinking or it's not the pills or it's not the grief or it's not the depression or it's not the food addiction. All those things are simply... A process of that. But really what the problem is, is something inside of you. And until you kind of are able to fix you, and we know that takes a community, that takes God, you can't move. And so Thursdays at 7 o'clock, if you have a hurt habit or hang-up of any kind, I don't know why you wouldn't go. Well, after Solomon had several drunken stupors, And he wakes up with a hangover every single morning. 
He finally is like, this isn't curing my void. I'm just getting a headache every morning. So it surely can't be that. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to material acquisition. If I just get enough stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and more stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff, then I'll be satisfied. So again, I'm not making this up. Smartest guy in the world says this. I undertook great projects. I built houses. Now notice it's not singular. It's not a house. One house is not enough. You've got to have a lake house. And then a lake house isn't enough because in the winter you really want to go skiing. So you've got to have a house out in Denver. So then he has all of these houses for myself. And I planted vineyards. I guess he thought just in case I was wrong about the wine thing, at least I'll have some more vineyards just in case. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. In other words, he's like, I'm not going to go out there and water all this stuff. I'm going to build a reservoir that will just kind of water it all for me. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Now, in those days, folks, if you wanted house staff, people that would take care of the house, you had to go to the slave route. You would find some slaves. And he said, I have all of these houses. They've got to be staffed with people who are going to do the things. Like, who wants to do laundry? Who wants to wash the dishes? Nobody wants to do that stuff. So he's like, I'm going to take care of that. He goes on, verse 7. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. When is it that you've arrived? In the United States, it's when someone pulls up to your house and they're like, that's a big house. You got it together. That guy is successful. That woman is successful. Or you get a car, you know, and you get some spinners on it. And, you know, it looks really, really tough. And you're driving around and everybody goes, that guy's successful. That woman is successful. Well, in Solomon's day, if you were a success, you had a lot of fields and you had a lot of herds of cattle on those fields. And Solomon's like, well, that's what I want. I want people to go by my fields. They see all the cattle and they're like, that guy is successful. He's really successful. Verse 8, he says, I amassed silver and gold for myself. You got to have a whole bunch of that. And the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. How many of you have gone to a concert recently? Any rock concert, Christian concert? It doesn't matter. Don't go, oh, I didn't go to a Christian one. I'm not going to raise my hand. God loves those concerts too. That's good music. Anybody raise your hand? You know why we don't have as many people? Because it costs a lot of money. Remember the day when you would go like for 10 or 15 bucks, you'd walk in, you sit on a lawn somewhere and everything. No, no, no. Now it's hundreds of dollars, you know, to go see that. Well, Solomon's like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy 
male and female singers, and they're going to come, and they're going to give concerts for me. And he's like, any time of the day, if I'm like, hey, I want a little jazz, I want a little R&B, you know, I want a little rock and roll, whatever I want, I'm just going to have them come and do that for me. Can you imagine you just pick up the phone, hey, Don Henley, uh, yeah, need the Eagles to come, uh, we need a concert, okay? Oh, he's already here. Okay, go ahead, start singing. Hotel California. You're like, oh, okay. How about Hotel Jerusalem, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And then how about you too? Just say, Bono, get up there, buddy. Here we go. I just haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah, go ahead, dude. Okay. Or Katy Perry. Katy, you're not going to Super Bowl. You're at my house. We do Super Bowl all the time. Go ahead. Get that big tiger looking thing. Go through there, you know, and (laughs) give us a show. Pretty cool, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, this next verse, folks, I, I don't know, know what to do with it. I, I didn't write it. It's in the Bible, though, okay? So you got to read it. Here it is. And a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. So he's like, I need a whole bunch of women. Now, I don't think this is very wise. This is one thing I disagree with him. I can't keep one woman happy. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to get a whole bunch of them. You're going to try to keep all them happy. Like, how does that happen? I think what happened was he got three credit cards to each woman and said, there's no spending limit. And just like, you know, passed it out to each one of them. I don't know. I don't know what you do with that. Then he says this. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Solomon was like the man. Imagine this. Paparazzi doesn't go around anyone else during this time except Solomon. Because no one else is worthy of taking a picture of. Only Solomon. He is the most famous person. He has the best image. He has the best house. He has the best property. He has the best band. has the best women. Now this next verse is unbelievable. Solomon says this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Whenever I felt I wanted something, I just got it. I refused my heart no pleasure. Solomon had unlimited stuff, and he had unlimited pleasure. Anything and everything he wanted was right at his fingertips. I mean, surely this is going to fill his void, right? I mean, think about that. You have all the wealth. You have all the pleasure This should fill the void. But look at what he said. It all meant to him. Ecclesiastes 2.11 Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. It's like he indulges in every possession. He indulges in every pleasure. But at the end of it, he's like, this is a waste of time. I mean, in my pursuit for meaning, in my concept of true soul satisfaction, I learned that more and more and more and more stuff and more and more and more pleasure at the end of it all just doesn't deliver. 
Now, can I add my uh, little experience to Solomon's? Is that all right? That'd be all right for you guys. I don't have much. I don't have as much wisdom, but this area there's a little bit. Many of you know my story that uh, I grew up as a PK preacher's kid, and uh, we were very poor. In fact, we couldn't afford the OR, so we were just po. Okay. Not OR, just Pope. And then 27 years later, I married up. I mean, like, I married way up. I married a doctor. She's not here today, so I'll say it. Not only is she hot, but she's smart. You know what I mean? So, like, I have both. And I remember at 27 when she got her first paycheck, and then I pulled my little one in there, you know, and kind of put it all together. And um, I remember in that moment thinking, we're making more money right now than both of our parents combined together. And I remember going to some of her colleagues' houses. And we'd walk into these huge houses. And this is my first thought. We could afford this. We could afford any of this. And they would show me their toys, and I'd be like, man, I really like those toys. I could afford it. Jen and I together, we could afford it. And I remember about after the the second year of having this kind of income, and we're going to all these places, I just asked myself, like, what's the point? Because I would talk to these same people when we were at parties and they would tell me about the struggles that they were having with their kids and the struggles they were having in their marriage. And like I became this counselor at this place and it just was weird. I can remember uh, when we went to go uh, buy our first house. We stayed in a small little ranch house uh, for ourselves for 11 years. Everyone else that was in Jennifer's residency class, they all had big homes. Most of them When they first signed in residency, we had this small little ranch house. We kept it for 11 years. Why? Because it met our needs. Well, eventually we had kids and we decided, hey, we need a little bit more space. And so we went with a realtor and the realtor takes us out to these homes. And I'll never forget, she took us to this gated community in Delaware County. We go inside it. We go to this house. And this house was bigger than the first church I pastored. And I remember walking out of that house and I turned to the realtor and I said, do not take us to any other houses that are this big. You know what our price point is. This is what we're going to do because our family is about people, not possessions. You don't need to clap. And the reality is, folks, that for the last 20 years, the greatest investments that Jennifer and I have made in is not our house, and it's not our car. We've never bought a new car. We've always bought used cars. And it's not in our 401k, but it's in people. Because the greatest investment that you can make with your one and only life is to invest in people. 
Because people, folks, is the only commodity that's going to be in heaven. Everything else, we're not sure about. But the one thing that I'm totally sure of is that people will be in heaven. And it's our desire as a husband and wife, and it's our desire as a church that we will invest in people. People who need food, we want to give food to. People who are lonely, we want to give encouragement to. People who are broken, we want to help them to be healed. People who are bored with life. That's one of the things that I noticed with so many people that make six figures is that they're just bored with life. They can't buy anything more. They already have it all. So they're bored with life. And we want to give a better path of purpose. And part of JAR 2.0 is that. And people are being fulfilled. I can tell you about dentists and attorneys and doctors that are in this place who they have a purpose now and they want to give all of it to. And they're just as important as the guy that comes here from the Muncie Mission because we're all trying to find what is it that satisfies us in life. The greatest joy, I can honestly say, for Jennifer and I is investing in people. I look up here sometimes, and I know your stories. Not all your stories, but some of them. And I'm just so grateful that God gave us material wealth that we can give to a place so that lives get changed in this place. Now back to Solomon. Now he writes this book called Ecclesiastes, and I want to ask you a question. Why is it in the very middle of the Bible? Like, why is Ecclesiastes in the middle of the Bible? Now, this is just my opinion. This is not anything scholarly, okay? So, uh, but this is my thought. I think it's right in the middle of the Bible because God didn't want us to get all the way to the end of our life and come up with the conclusion that Solomon figured out right in the middle That stuff and pleasure and work ultimately do not satisfy. And so I think it's right there in the middle so that we don't get to the conclusion of our life and we don't realize that big idea. Well, this uh, past week I was uh, looking at an article interview uh, about this guy. Anybody know who that is? Who? Who? Bill Gates, yeah. I found out today what his, um, or this week, what his net worth is. It's $80 billion. That's a B, okay? $80 billion. But about 15 years ago, he moved away from wealth building, and he went into what was called wealth distribution. He and his wife... Uh, created a foundation called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And its whole purpose is to turn billions of dollars into helping hurting people and curing diseases and feeding people and educating the poor. Like that's their whole purpose. It's the wealthiest nonprofit in the world. And in the article, the question was asked, why did you decide to move from wealth building to wealth distribution? 
And this is how he replied. Well, this is probably not going to satisfy you. But I woke up one day and I asked myself, what is the point? What is the point? I can earn another billion or five billion or ten billion. But what's the point? How many billions are enough? And I ended that article and I thought, just one billion? (laughs) I don't want to be greedy. I just need one. One's a small number, right? One billion, that's good. I'm good with that. Now let's get out of Bill Gates' world because none of us are ever going to be at that world. But you know what I've heard people at the jar say before? If I could just get my own place, then I'd be satisfied. If I could get my own car, then I'd be satisfied. If I could just get a little bigger house, then I'd be satisfied. If I could get my savings account up a few more hundred or a few more thousand then I'd be satisfied. Or if I could get my retirement account up to this number, then I'd finally be satisfied. Now, just to quote Solomon, who came to the same conclusion almost 3,000 years ago, at some point, you'll wake up and you begin to feel like you're chasing the wind. It's meaningless. It does not satisfy. Now, I think it's really important at this point to balance things because sometimes uh, pastors will say something and then you walk out and you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't know about that. So I want to balance this. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this. Let's read this out loud together. God richly gives us everything to enjoy. That last word, to enjoy. Folks, the the Christian faith is not fundamentally anti-stuff. And it's not anti-pleasure. Because stuff and pleasure are important. God recognizes that. He sees that. I have some stuff. I like my stuff. But this is what I've learned. That all my stuff comes from the hands of God. I acknowledge it comes from Him. I don't worship it. You know what I like to do with my stuff? I like to share my stuff. God came up after the first celebration. He's like, hey, you want to share your car with me this week? (laughs) This is what's great. My car's getting worked on, so I had to borrow my dad's car. I said, sure, here's the keys. (laughs) think God can do some wonderful things. Boy, I enjoy my stuff. But this is the thing, folks. My stuff doesn't own me. And I'm telling you the truth. I've done it before. I could let go of any of my stuff right now. And it would not affect me. It wouldn't. Because it doesn't have its hooks in me. 
Again, Christianity is not anti-stuff in any way. Also, it's not anti-pleasure. All you have to do is read in the Old Testament, and this is what you find. You find, and they had a party, and then they had a festival, and then they had a celebration. And all the time, like if you read through the Old Testament, what you see is that they're just partying all the time. Last night I went to a wedding. I officiated the wedding, and it was a family here in our church. And uh, it was awesome. And most of them have all come to Christ, and people were there, and everyone was partying and having a good time. And, you know, there wasn't anyone, like, passed out on the lawn going, Yeah, man! Good job, Pastor! No! It was just Christ followers there, hanging out, having fun. Some of the best party animals I know are Christians. They love to have fun and do stuff like that. They do. So the Bible is clear that, is not, that it is not anti-stuff or anti-pleasure. But it's brutally honest about this, folks. And this is the point. That your pleasure, your stuff, will never fill your void. It will never fill the deepest void that you and I were created with. Because stuff and pleasure ultimately don't satisfy. So Solomon tries one more thing. He's like, okay, stuff didn't work. Pleasure didn't work. I have one more thing that I'm going to try. He's like, work. Your work. Work can do that. And so he tries multiple different jobs to find the right work situation. And he looks and he looks and he looks. And finally, though, he has to come to the bitter conclusion with these honest words in chapter 2, verse 17. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless, like chasing the wind. Well, we're two chapters into Ecclesiastes, and I was, I was thinking about it this week. This guy may need to be on antidepressants. Because every other word is like, it's just meaningless. It's all meaningless. Or if he doesn't need that, he needs like a case of Red Bull. You know what I mean? Just like, start drinking that. Do something. But the more I studied Ecclesiastes this past week, I really started to understand Solomon's disillusionment with work. You ever get disillusioned with work? I'm a pastor. There are some days when I go into a meeting and a person has this horrible attitude. Or I go into a meeting and, you know, people are just not making changes in their life that they just told me that they were going to. And sometimes I come to the end of the day and I'm just like, am I making a difference? Like, am I, am I really making a difference? Whatever you do, have you ever come to the point where you get to the end of work and you go into work and you're doing the best work that you can and you're doing it well, but then there's just this toxic environment around you or you think of the people that you're trying to help and at the end of it you're just like, is it worth it? Well, ultimately, Solomon 
realizes what our big idea is this morning. And he comes to the point and he's like, you know, stuff and pleasure and work ultimately do not satisfy. We can summarize everything. The smartest guy in the world said by, he's just saying, you know, it doesn't satisfy. He said the problem is, is that we just get distracted by so many things. And then it takes us down other paths. And in the words of Bono and the U2 boys, people go through their entire life and they still never found what they're looking for. Can I give you a quick peek to chapter 12? We're going to look at it throughout the next few weeks, but I just want to give you a quick peek and we'll look at this several times. But in Ecclesiastes 12:13, at the end of it, this is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of this matter. Solomon's like, I've given you all the arguments. I've told you everything of what does and doesn't satisfy. Nothing satisfy. It's all meaningless. But I'm telling you guys, please do this. And then he says these words. What are the words? He says the conclusion of the matter is what? Fear. Fear God. Now, this word fear in the Hebrew is not a word that is like terror or being afraid or scared. It's about respect and reverence to one. That you respect God enough and you love him enough that he fills you with his love and his grace. You receive it from him. So you fear the Lord and you keep his commandments, for this is the duty of every human being. Folks, this is what it's all about. He says, you honor God. And then you keep his commandments. And that if you do those two things, you'll find a satisfied life. Now, quick question to just kind of close us this morning. Where are you likely going to spend your final day? Where are you likely going to spend your final day? Well, for most of us, we're going to spend our final day in a room that looks like this. In a hospital room. And you're going to be flat on your bed. And there'll be all of these different monitors that are around there for you. And I know this because I'm a pastor. And I've sat with hundreds of people by a bed like that. And for some of them, I've been there in their final days. And for some of them, I've been there in their very last day. A few people, actually, their very last breath. But you know what I've never heard someone say when they're flat out on that bed? Hey, could you go to the basement and the fourth box down, it says bowling. And in there is my bowling trophy that I won 20 years ago. And I'd like you to bring that bowling trophy back to me and I'd like to cuddle that trophy. And I'll just hold it as I get ready to die. Or can you go to the bank and get all the money that I have left in the bank? Get it all in cash, bring it to me, put it on my bed. I'd like to hold all of it until I expire. Or can you send someone to take my caddy and take it to the car wash, bring it outside my window, 
And as I'm almost ready to, make, uh, to meet my maker, I can be looking at my Cadillac. Folks, I have never heard conversations like that when people are sitting or, or, or laying in that bed. You know the conversations I hear? Two things. 100% of the time. One is the conversation of, am I okay with my family? Am I okay with the relationships in my family? And secondly, am I right enough with God to meet my maker? The first church that I uh, pastored, there was a guy by the name of Vernon. He was a farmer. In fact, he was one of the wealthiest farmers. Uh, someone told me once that he was the second wealthiest farmer in all of Carroll County. He was a multi, multi-millionaire. He had thousands and thousands of acres of land. He had thousands and thousands of hogs. He owned hundreds of homesteads where he would uh, farm the fields around it, and then he would rent out the house to people, and he just had money coming in all the time. And at the end of his life, his health greatly deteriorated. And uh, this is what he did. He actually bought a condominium that was the closest house to the EMT garage. So that if something happened to him, he would be able to be put into the EMT vehicle and they could take him to Lafayette within 30 minutes. Now, when I met Vernon, he was consumed with the horrible disease of Alzheimer's. He didn't talk. And so I talked with his wife most of the time. This guy was loaded. I mean, multi, multi millionaire. But the weird thing was, outside of me, every time I visited him, the only person that was ever there was his wife. None of his farmhands, no other family, none of his children were even there until the very end and then the two sisters fought over whatever they had. And I remember walking into his room after doing this multiple times. And I thought to myself, I pitied the man. And I thought, dude, you got it wrong. Like, you got it way, way wrong. Folks, you only have one life. You only pass through one time. And as far as I can tell, the death rate still is hovering at 100%. I'm not sure, but I think in the last hour I checked, that's kind of what it is. You're going to wind up in a hospital bed. Many of you, just like that, flat on your back. And I'm telling you, folks, you want your family around you. <laughs> you really want your family around you. And whatever is not reconciled in your family today, 
I would spend whatever I could to make it happen. Maybe you've just been distracted by something. You've been chasing the wind. Maybe you've been rejecting home, kind of like Vernon did. But you could change today. You really could. Now contrast Vernon's story with another lady in that same church. Her name was Lesta. She was a farm wife. Her husband was a fairly affluent farmer as well. She was the organist of the church. She went and she served the shut-ins. And at the end of her life, she was diagnosed with cancer. And it was fast-progressing. At the end of her life, you know what she did? She gave almost everything away to all of her family. She lived in a small little apartment. And one of the last times I visited her, she said, Chris, could you invite some of the church people over and I'm going to invite some of my family and I would like to sing church hymns together. And so I asked a few people, and that day, I'll never forget, the room was totally full. And there were people outside her little apartment, because the apartment was so full. There were people outside with hymnals, and we're all singing, and we're worshiping God. And I looked at Lesta, and she's mouthing the words, and it was like this, this face of thankfulness, because she had found what she had been looking for. She had found it in Christ himself. And she went on to her next life, being solely satisfied and solely secure. Quite a contrast, isn't it? The way that people die. Folks, when you get to the end of your life, what you really are going to want is to be good with your family and to be good with God. But the problem with life is that there are so many distractions. Things distract us all the time from focusing in on those two things. Stuff distracts us. Pleasure distracts us. Our work distracts us. These three things aren't wrong. It's just sometimes they become very distracting and they take us down some rabbit trails that we would never want to go to, but we do. And then we realize we're off the path and we're like, it's just like chasing the wind. It's not satisfying. It's meaningless. So as we close today, I just want to challenge you that if you're off the main road, it only takes one turn to get back on the road. One where you're rightly connecting with Jesus Christ himself, and the void in your life then becomes filled. 
And that's the kind of life, folks, honestly, that I want to live. I want to live a satisfied and secure life. Are you up for that? So I'd like you to stand. And we're going to close with uh, just a couple verses of this song. But I really want you to get straight right now. What is the main road? Like, what is the main road? And who is it that is at the center of all these things? Who is the only person, folks, that can really fill the void in your life? So let's sing as uh, we connect with God. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus, Jesus, and nothing else matters, and nothing in this world will do, and Jesus, you're the If I didn't ask you today, if some of you are off the path, and it really doesn't matter if you're a Christ follower or you're here for the first time, we all get distracted. Everyone does. And we go down these rabbit trails for a long time, but finally we've got to decide, I went back on the path. And I'll tell you, a relationship with Christ will do that. And secondly, meeting with him each day. That's why we're giving you this reading plan. So that tomorrow you spend time with God. Five or ten minutes where you read and you reflect and you're present. And you center yourself back upon the one who can fill your void. Because stuff can't do it and pleasure can't do it. And your work can't do it. But Jesus can because he is the center. You know, folks, the reality is for me, my life is not perfect. I'm far from perfect. I'm a work in progress. But I know what direction I'm heading. I know what purpose I have for this thing called life. And I know who is the center of all that I want to become. So have your moment with God. We're going to ask the prayer team to come up here.
you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray with you. Let's just close out singing that one more time. And Jesus be center of my Jesus be the center of my life From beginning to the end And it will always be It's always been you, Jesus Jesus And nothing else matters And nothing in this world will do And Jesus, you're the Again, if you'd like prayer for anything, these folks would love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, you're the only one who can ultimately satisfy our life. And so if we've been on a rabbit trail, if we've turned away, we can return to you. And I pray, God, that in this moment and through this week, God, that we really would realize that stuff pleasure and work ultimately never satisfies. And God, would you fill us with your spirit that we would make you the center each day this week so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Like prayer for anything. Come on up.